This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about how to be pro-life in Joe Biden's America, an article by David French. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. I'm Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Well, you know, it's turning into we were joking off air. Uh, it's turned into a bit of a, a weekly deal. Uh, someone we like to consider a friend of the show, David French, going to be your neighbor down in the Nashville area, apparently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, David French at the French Press, his his blog, French Press. And David French has uh, increasingly uh, gotten a lot of uh, attention for for just his great writing, but also his strong stances on things. And he wrote this. How to be pro-life in Joe Biden's America, the most effective avenues to preserve life still remains. This is on the heels of like this Christian Christian headlines article that says Biden says he's, quote, deeply committed to legalized abortion, wants pro-row federal law. So this is a really important topic right now. And David French writes how to be pro-life in Joe Biden's America. Why don't you get us into this? Why don't I, Brian? He writes, the longer I've been engaged in the quest to eliminate abortion from the United States of America, the more I've become convinced that the core challenge rests not on the supply side, the availability of legal abortion access, but rather on the demand side. In other words, a nation or state that wants legal abortion will have legal abortion. And even in a nation or state that severely restricts abortion access, women who want abortion will find a way. That already, I imagine, especially as someone who is a self-proclaimed conservative Christian, that's probably controversial to some ears, right? I imagine that's Mm -hmm. maybe even someone listening, but he goes on. He says, in fact, I'd argue that the best explanation for the long-term decline in the abortion rate is primarily decreased demand. The available data indicates that America's abortion rate is now lower than it was when Roe was decided when abortion was illegal in most American states. If you read this newsletter, you've seen this chart before. It's important to show it again. So I would recommend I've actually seen seven or eight different versions of this chart and the comment section are they never disappoint. But it is it is worth checking out. He says, though, there is evidence that the abortion rate increased slightly in 2018. Reporting on abortion rates tends to take time. The long term trend is deeply encouraging after an initial and expected surge in abortion rates after Roe legalized abortion from coast to coast. The rate has declined through every single American presidency, pro-life and pro-choice. The bottom line is clear. There is no reason for pro-life Americans to simply presume this 40-year positive trend will change and every reason to believe that the most effective forms of pro-life engagement can and will continue even under a Biden presidency. So he's going to get into what some of those ways are. Let me just pause and ask you, Brian, are you, are you, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Are you convinced by his introduction here, like what he finds and what perhaps do you assume might the response be? Yeah, I am convinced. I do believe the data that I know some people don't believe it, but I do believe the data that shows that uh, that abortions went down under President Trump and President Bush and abortions went down under President Obama and that there's more than just political who's in the presidency. I, I do buy a lot of like what Phil Vischer and Sky Jatani did, that work, that video they put out uh, about what is it uh, that causes abortions to go up and go down. I think it's really interesting when French puts it in almost in economic terms about supply versus demand, right? Is uh, 
and that he hangs it on the demand. I think the pushback is going to be, yeah, it's never good, though, to have somebody in office who's saying, quote, I want to I am deeply committed to abortion. It's never good to have a vice president who uh, has a hundred percent approval rating of, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood and other things. These are never good things. And I would agree with that. But I, I do appreciate French saying, but this isn't the time. There's no reason for the church or for pro-life advocates to say, OK, throw our hands up. It's all there's going to be abortions all over the place now that he's saying, no, that that's not what's going on here. And he's going to talk about what it is that actually uh, is going to continue this decline in abortions. And I think uh, the work he does, again, I don't know that everybody believes or knows uh, the, the statistics, but I do believe these statistics. I've seen enough. And like you said, you've seen these charts in different places that I do tend to believe it. And so I think there's certainly work to be done. But I think I think history proves that uh, that, that the church can step in here and make a huge impact. Yeah, sure. A little bit later, he says, for pro-life Americans, here's some good news. Do personal intervention, support for church ministry, support for crisis pregnancy centers, and support for effective public policy. You can directly impact most of the concerns outlined above. I've written before to urge pro-life Americans to redouble their personal commitment to supporting moms and babies. No presidential administration can stop you from volunteering at a crisis pregnancy center. You can adopt you can foster parent. You can give money to those working on the front lines to love mothers and children and to save lives. These personal interventions are absolutely vital to preserving life in a nation that increasingly dislikes abortion but still refuses to ban abortion. But let's also talk policy. Let's talk Mitt Romney. Last week, the Utah senator proposed transforming the child tax credit into a child tax allowance that could transform the financial condition of many of America's poorest families. Under the Romney proposal, families would receive $4,200 per year per child up to age six and $3,000 per year per child between ages six and 17. Families would receive a uh, monthly payments and the payments would begin four months prior to the child's due date. Romney proposes paying for the tax allowance in part by repealing the state and local tax deduction. The allowance would also phase out at the highest income levels. I don't know how much you've heard people referring to or uh, responding to this Romney proposal. Do you, do you have much knowledge of what he's, what he's laying out here? I, I don't have a ton, but this is where we get ourselves, interestingly, with my Republican friends where I've had abortion discussions where they really push back. And I, and I always, you know, if, if, if the goal is to, to, de, to drive the number of abortions down, again, I, I referenced the Sky Jatani and Phil Vischer video, that maybe the best thing we can do is to attack poverty. But oftentimes when we go, we're going to attack poverty, we're going to make health care more accessible – it makes my more conservative friends really uneasy. And and that's where kind of the, the hard parts of this discussion happen. Romney's saying if we can get people, uh, if it's no longer a, a choice between poverty and bring another child into the world or something that we can drive down the abortion rate, then I, I actually believe this. I, I do. I, I'm finding myself increasingly being a much more moderate Republican than a lot of my friends. Mm. Uh, but. I think and again, I don't know the tax implications. I don't know this like I get it. There's a lot of people smarter than me. But again, if the ultimate goal in the abortion conversation is to drive down the number of abortions, I think attacking poverty is one of the greatest, if not the most important thing that we can do. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a big leap for some people. And that that is kind of, you know, I, again, Vischer and Jatani's thing said that banning Roe versus Wade overturning it is going to drive abortions down. So yeah. by X amount. So we should go for it. 
uh, more restrictive things in states is going to drive abortions out. So we could go for it. But then they say that statistics seem to show that the number one driver would be attacking poverty uh, and and lack of health care. And that's a lot of times where Republicans and conservatives won't go to. But their point was that might actually drive the number down more than the other two things. Yeah. So things like this Romney proposal, I think, are really interesting. Yeah, at the end here, he talks about how he had the privilege of teaching a short course on Christianity and politics at Covenant College. And he says, to those students, my message was simple. I told them about the graph above and the generations long plunge in the abortion rate, regardless of who wielded power. Politics do matter, certainly, but there's a deeper truth. Christians don't need to win Senate races to love their neighbors. They don't need to hold the White House to stand with women in need. And when you're willing to commit to creative and cooperative methods of forming and sustaining thriving families, you'll find that there are many ways of cherishing and preserving our most vulnerable American lives. That is in full French fashion. I imagine he's caught some heat for this one, probably for some of the reasons that you mentioned and more, Brian. But at the very least, I I would honestly love to know what people think of this. Absolutely. David French is just a wonderful uh, writer and uh, people agree, disagree. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put it up at our Facebook page uh, and Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And let us know what you think. We would love some feedback where we write, where are we wrong on this. Yeah, absolutely. Coming up next, though, I got to tell you, I'm I am so thrilled for this guest, Dr. Richard Beck. We referenced him a couple of weeks ago. He wrote A Theology of Calvin and Hobbes. That's what we were talking about. He's written other books. Uh, this one's a great title, Trains, Jesus and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. But more recently, uh, Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. He's joining us for two segments here next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we're thrilled to have for two segments, someone we referenced a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Richard Beck. Welcome to the show, sir. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's our pleasure. Would, would you just take a, a minute or two and introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, what I do, my day job, I'm a professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University down here in Abilene, Texas, and I'm an author. My most recent book was uh, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, <laughs> the, Go- the Gospel According to Johnny Cash. <laughs> and my upcoming book is called Hunting Magic Eels, uh, Re- Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. So the titles are unusual, but maybe, maybe people will pull them off the shelf. I love it. <laughs> and, and as as Ian said, we we referenced you from an article that somebody else wrote a couple of weeks ago uh, about Calvin and Hobbes, which was a lot of fun to discuss. But as I was looking at it, you've written on the theology of Calvin and Hobbes, the theology of peanuts. You just talked about Johnny Cash. <laughs> what drives you to want to kind of explore, uh, say, pop culture things or Calvin and Hobbes and tie them back to our faith? It seems like something you like to do. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I was one of those people that uh, started a blog back when blogs were still a thing. I'm still blogging at Experimental Theology, and it was just a location where I could explore these fun kind of tangential topics. So as a professor, a lot of your academic interests need to be somewhat professional. So when you get a brainstorm about Calvin and Hobbes or Johnny Cash, you you need an outlet for that. And blogs were just a great place to just float ideas and experiment, and it's been my fortune that – some of those things have found their way to, to audiences and even in a print. So so we'll talk more about some of those print uh, ventures of yours. But I, I just got to know, as someone who like 
grew up reading Calvin and Hobbes in some ways, like collect. I mean, my whole family was into it. It was sort of a cultural thing. Maybe it's because I was homeschooled. It's hard to tell. But <laughs> like, what are some of the like key takeaways, if you can remember from from doing this work in kind of an unexpected way? Like, what would you want someone to know about a theology of Calvin and Hobbes that they maybe otherwise wouldn't know? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing you want to be careful with is importing Christian theology and right. beliefs where it's not welcome. And so I think the first thing you have to do in approaching a text like Calvin and Hobbes is is not turn the turn Calvin and Hobbes into something it's not. So you want to be you want to be true to its vibe. And that's the first question you got to deal with in in my series I had to deal with is that the strip isn't overtly religious, but there are hints where the gospel can show up. And one of the most obvious one is just the name of Calvin, which Watterson explicitly said was named after John Calvin mm. of uh, and his kind of dim take on human nature and Christian theology would call that the doctrine of like total depravity or original sin. And if you know anything about Calvin and Hobbes, it is a profound meditation on human nature through the personality of Calvin. And, mm. but so I think there's an, a window in there to what we call like Christian anthropology, a, a vision of our self-centeredness, of our egotism, of our – even our meanness. You see how Calvin treats uh, Susie, uh, the girl in the strip. And so that's kind of what was my entry point, just a reflection on human nature, original sin, our fallenness, and then starting from there and kind of exploring outwards. Oh, that's great. Uh, you said, as you said, you have a new book coming out in March called Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. And I just can't wait, wait to get my hands on this book because you talk about how in the, enlighten, in the Enlightenment and uh, the Reformation, we've become increasingly disenchanted. And you're talking about an enchanted faith. And, and I love that word. Could you speak to us a little bit about what you mean when you use the phrase an enchanted faith? Yeah, that's a word that has come up in the sociology of religion literature, characterizing 500 years ago when the world was enchanted. That is to say, belief in God was taken as a given. Mm -hmm. And not just belief in God, but all supernatural phenomenon from the occult to ghosts to spirits to demons to the devil and God himself and angels. But our world is increasingly disenchanted, and so we see rate, rising rates of skepticism, agnosticism, disbelief, the decline of Christianity in the West. But I like the word enchantment and disenchantment because we typically talk about faith in the idiom of belief, uh, to believe in something cognitively. But enchantment allows us to focus more on the experience of God. And I found that a fruitful hmm. beginning place to talk about faith with my students because normally they think of Christianity as like trying to force themselves to believe in unbelievable things. Right. So, so believing in Christianity is like forcing yourself to believe in Santa Claus. But if you open up the language of faith to experience, what, what are you experiencing in life? Where is the sacred and divine showing up in surprising ways? Suddenly, it's a more generous conversation, and people can get some on-ramp there. And go like, yeah, I've had experiences where I think there's something mysterious going on with the world. Hmm. So, so why do you think, at least in Western post-Enlightenment culture, experience in some circles tends to be really downplayed? Obviously, that's not true in a lot of like maybe more charismatic circles, but it certainly feels like at least in conversations I've been in, oh, well, a rational person doesn't uh, elevate experience to the level of intellect or, you know, cerebral ascent. Like, why, why do you think there's sometimes this, this tendency to dismiss the experiential? 
Yeah, I think it just depends on who you're talking to because I know by introducing experience into religious context, I know a lot of my friends that are theologians and Bible scholars get a little concerned about that because they see how religious experience like charismatic excesses can can go off the rails. Uh, and so you definitely need to talk about discernment and the biblical idea of discerning the spirits. And so – so there are some temptations there when you start privileging experience because experience can become for a person unimpeachable, right? Mm-hmm. I've had God speaks to me. I've, I've got a word from the Lord and nothing else can speak against that. So I, I think there's a worry on that side. But I do think also in the culture, there is a rationalism that's at stake that it's the rational, the empirical, the factual that leads us to the truth. And so mm-hmm. experience is subjective and therefore – um, a location of skepticism. So, at, but at that point, I think you want to talk to people about how the most important things in your life tend to be experiences. That that there's something weird going on with us when we start downplaying experiences. Because when you talk about love and faith and value, even among atheists, that it's their experiences of the world, their experiences of value, of truth, beauty, and goodness of even the mystery of the world, even if they don't believe in God, something mysterious about the world, that those are the truest things in their lives, that mm-hmm. we aren't robots, that we aren't just, you know, logical, factual creatures. So um, there's skepticism there, but I think there's a way to kind of push back on that a little bit. Yeah, and, and in the description, it says that part of the book, you talk about to cultivate an enchanted faith in a skeptical age. And you've talked about it a little bit, but but what might be one or two very practical things we can do to cultivate it? How do we grow uh, in enchanted faith in our lives? Well, I take an idea from the theologian Andrew Root, who borrows an idea from a, a Harvard uh, psychologist, Daniel Simons, the about uh, what he calls attentional blindness. Do you all know that YouTube clip where you're asked to see two teams passing a basketball back and forth and you're supposed to yeah. count the passes between the teams? Yeah. If, if you haven't seen it, your viewers can go online and find this and you count the passes between these two teams and the video says, how many passes did you count? And you say 12. But then they say, great, you got the correct answer, but did you see the dancing gorilla? And the video replays, <laughs> and lo, lo and behold, you see this dancing gorilla in front of you. And so in psychology, that's called attention blindness. The way your attention can cause you to see some things, but blind you to very obvious things like a dancing gorilla right in front of you. So it might be heretical to write a book uh, basically saying God is the dancing gorilla in your life. <laughs> uh, but that's the, that's the idea I play with is that God is that very obvious thing right in front of you. But your attention has been drawn to other things in life. And some of it's the, the way science has drawn our attention. Um, but it's also just kind of the hurry and neurosis of our lives that cause us to become kind of self-absorbed and self-focused. To go back to Calvin and Hobbes, right? He's a very yeah. internally oriented kind of little kid. So what I recommend in the book is, and across a series of chapters are, are practices that cause you to kind of re-attend to your life to the kind of very obvious things. And one simple place to start is just widening the view. Hmm. So when you talk about religious experiences, most people think of visions of angels or the audible voice of God. Mm-hmm. And, and they look at their life and they go like, I've never really experienced anything like that. But when you widen the view and say, but haven't you stood like, you know, right there at the threshold when your child was born or when you were suddenly interrupted by a sunset or a starry sky, where you where you paused for a moment and just kind of said, you know, I think there's something more here 
than just a factual description of what happened, hmm. that, that I bumped into a texture of the sacred. And so it's, it's a hermeneutical process. And that's just a fancy word for interpretation mm-hmm. to help us reread and reinterpret what happens in front of us every day. And if we can train ourselves, then I think God shows up a lot more than we think. Gosh, that's so good. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Beck. He's the author of the new book, Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. That'll be available March 23rd, 2021. But uh, my ears always perk up whenever a guest mentions practices, because to me, a lot of times that's the meat and the potatoes. Like, all right, we've existed in the nebulous and ethereal, at least the theoretical for a little bit. I would love for you to spend a little time sharing with us what are some of those practices for the type of enchanted life that you're talking about? Uh there's a saying in Catholic theology that goes, matter matters. Yes. And I'm a Protestant, um, and so there's some wisdom in that. Matter matters. And what they mean by that is if you have any exposure to Catholicism, the material surroundings make a difference. Hmm. And if you go into like a, a Protestant worship auditorium, it's a pretty disenchanted place. There's not a whole lot reminding you of the presence of God. Maybe there's some mic stands, a drum kit. <laughs> there might be a cross. But if you go to a Catholic space, you're surrounded by stained glass, mm-hmm. uh, aromas with the incense, statues, pictures. So one one practice is just attend to your surroundings. Again, if, if experiencing God is a practice of attention, then there are things that we can do to re-enchant our space. So think about what you wear on your – as far as your jewelry. Think about what hangs from your uh, your mirror in your car. What, what sits next to your bed stand? What does your office look like? Can you put up visual cues that kind of remind you that, that God is everywhere present? And so look – don't just reduce space to functionality, but attend to aesthetics. So that's another practice. Attend to the aesthetics of the faith. I think when our faith becomes excessively verbal and intellectual and not aesthetic – Hmm. Uh, we, we lose track of that emotional register there. Yeah. Um, another practice I think is prayer practices, especially ones geared toward gratitude because gratitude is on this outward posture of receiving a gift. And the word for gift is the same word for grace in scripture. Mm-hmm. And so I think practices of gratitude um, in prayer, just saying thank you for this moment is a way to re-enchant the day because then you turn something that's like a normal task, like before you sit down at work or do that first load of laundry or before you get in that long car commute, if you just take a breath and just say, thank you for this, mm. then you enchant that moment and you chant something that has been in the past, maybe disenchanted, right? Devoid of the experience of God. And I also think I have a chapter in the book about Celtic Christianity. And I just think a lot of us know that nature is a place where we, experience enchantment. God interrupts us out in natural spaces. And that's one of the lessons I think we've gotten from COVID is people got outside a little bit more mm. and realized how healing that had been for them. And and so nature is a good example, uh, prayer and gratitude, and just attending to beauty and aesthetics are just some things that you can do in your life to re-enchant your day. We talked about your blog, Experimental Theology, uh, and you wrote one just the other day that I was reading through today as we're getting ready for this interview called The Powers and Political Involvement. And this is a question Ian and I have been talking about a ton, especially since the election. You start it with this question. What is the place of politics in the life of the Christian? And uh, I I love to ask that question of our guests. And uh, could you share with our people, how do you answer that question? How do you answer the question you pose there? What is the place of politics in the life of the Christian? Yeah, I think the two temptations are withdrawal and isolation 
or over investment, over involvement. So you're really walking between these two temptations. So there are some Christian impulses, especially on the Anabaptist side of the tradition, like the Amish and whatnot, where the idea is to not participate. And I actually grew up in a church where non-participation was the way to go. Like we wouldn't even vote. And the idea was that politics was the apparatus of Babylon. So don't, don't touch it. Whenever the church touches the levers of power, bad things happen. And, and so some theologians have described that as the Constantinian temptation. When, when Christianity became aligned with the state, the Roman state and Constantine, things just started going off the tracks. Hmm. I think the other tendency is to, is to lose track of the church and think that what happens in Washington, D.C. is the hope of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happening with my students, especially my students that are social justice warriors. And, and by that, I, I use that as a very respectful term because the passion to make the world a better place, um, I adore it. And I think we should be involved. We can talk more about that. But, but it seems like more and more my students' imagination is that the only lever they can pull to change the world is electoral politics. Mm-hmm. And, right, and, and therefore, that's high stakes now. Every election is high stakes because if we don't get – hold of that lever, then everything's just going to fall apart. Right. And I think we see that what is happening in the Christian community on both the left and the right, when the left, Christian left I'm speaking about, and the Christian right get over-politicized, I, I think we've narrowed the bandwidth of how we change the world. So I try to get my students to say, hey, I think the local church is still really important. And there are things you can do in your community where you're looking eye to eye with people. And so don't just worry about what's happening in Washington. Just don't follow Twitter feeds. Like volunteer in your community because there you're going to find life-giving work that is actually making a local difference. So a localism is where I want to get my students focused. And it it seems like it's becoming increasingly easier and more popular to to not just be like a social justice warrior, but to be an online social justice warrior. You know, we talk a lot about like virtue signaling. As long as I tweeted about it, I've done something. And I, you know, language matters, awareness matters. But I also am reading here, when you talk about that that eye-to-eye type stuff, you lead a Bible study each week for inmates at a maximum security prison. Could, could you talk to us a little more about that particular part of your life? Yeah, no, that's exactly uh, a great illustration of what I'm speaking about is that uh, I, I was having a tendency to reduce Christianity to verbal performance. Um, uh, where we all we, we talk a lot. I don't know if you noticed that as a faith, we just we talk a lot, and, and we can reduce Christianity to intellectual beliefs and ver- verbiage. Mm-hmm. And so I was concerned about just the plight of incarceration, and and uh, uh, and so I volunteered to start leading a Bible study to maximum security prison north of my hometown here, where I lead a Bible study every Monday night for about 50 inmates there. And it has been so life-giving to be, to be involved in that work. It just changes how you see the world. It's been the highlight of my, of my week really. And it's kind of one of the reasons why I got into Johnny Cash because of his Folsom prison, San Quentin prison albums. It was, it was through my prison ministry that I got attracted to the music of Johnny Cash and how he experienced kind of a grace there on the margins of society as well. And Richard, the last question I want to ask you is this, Ian and I are both pastors. You may not know that that's what we do kind of our main jobs. And so uh, thinking again about hunting magic eels and this idea of an enchanted faith, what would you say to pastors specifically about how to lead a church in this way, whether it be how we structure Sunday morning or where we put our emphasis, what would you say to pastors who want to go in this direction? 
Yeah, I taught a class at, about this at Fuller Theological Seminary just this last um, summer. And one of the things I had those pastors do in the class was just ask their people, when was the last time God showed up in your life? Mm. And they got some really great feedback because, again, it's a hermeneutical, hermeneutical activity. You're asking people to say, go back in the day. When did God show up? So teach your people to read their lives in an enchanted way, because otherwise you're going from Sunday to Sunday and God's not in between. So so helping them tell their own stories of God's activity in their life and naming the presence of God, I think, is a key practice, because if we don't do it in this secular age, we lose track of God's existence completely. And we start living as like functional atheists like we believe, but functionally we're going through the day as if God does not exist. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's so good. We're so grateful for you being so generous with your time. Real quickly, where can people get the books or read your writing or book you to speak or find you on social media? Just hit us with all that. Yeah, I mean, you can go to my blog, Experimental Theology. My email is there. You can contact me if you want me to show up at uh, your organization or your church. And my books can be found at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or IndieBound, wherever you like to buy your books. Yeah, Richard Beck, just Google it. Thank you so much. Our guest today has been Dr. Richard Beck, author of Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. It was lovely. Thank you. you. Likewise. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, there was a story the other day that was flying around Twitter uh, in kind of like of uh, in kind of the baseball world. So there's a guy at ESPN who I really like to read. His name is Jeff Passan. Uh, and Passan wrote an article and did a, it was actually a document, a small documentary uh, about a San Francisco Giants outfielder by the name of Drew Robinson. Uh, it says San Francisco Giants outfielder Drew Robinson's remarkable second act. And so I don't know how familiar you are with the story, uh, but let me just summarize it and we'll kind of get to, to the main point. Again, Drew Robinson, uh, he's, uh, he is a, a, a professional baseball player who kind of got to the point where uh, they're too good for AAA, but not good enough to be like a regular starter in the Major League Baseball. So kind of back and forth, back and forth. And uh, Drew Robinson uh, over the pandemic and all this stuff was just dealing with depression on a deep level uh, and really questioned whether he still wanted to live. And a lot of people, the reason I want to highlight this story is because Drew Robinson's story is relatable for some people, but in another way, it's not relatable. He had reached the pinnacle of his profession. He was a major league baseball player, so not a star, but he was a major league baseball player. So a lot of people out there are going, man, if I were ever a major league baseball player, I wouldn't have a trouble in the world, right? Or I would have no problems. And let me read just this paragraph from Passon's article. It says, Drew sat on his living room couch, poured himself a glass of whiskey, then another, and then he stopped. He didn't have an alcohol problem and didn't want anyone surmise otherwise. His thoughts crashed into one another about what it would be like and whom it would affect and who would find him. He was alone, alone until the end at about 8 p.m., In one uninterrupted motion, he leaned on his side, reached out to the coffee table, lifted his gun, pressed it against the right temple, and he pulled the trigger. This was supposed to be the end of Drew Robinson's story. Over the next 20 hours, he would come to realize it was just the beginning of another. And so the story is he didn't die. He uh, had a lot of problems, obviously. Uh, But he goes on to say, I'm here for a reason. 
Uh, Drew Robinson said just six days before Christmas, he's feeling thankful. He wants to tell the world what happened so he can heal and maybe so he can help others heal as well. Let me just pause there, Ian, and just go, A, did you hear about this story? And if you had or if this is the first time you'd heard about this, uh, what's the impact that this story has on you as you hear it? I mean, I, I think it's always powerful to hear stories from people who have found themselves in a, in a place like that. And we're, we're able to not only like recover, but to also have the drive then to, to want to reach out and to help other people who might be experiencing the same types of difficulty and challenge. And I think, you know, I've mentioned this now a few times, but when we did uh, a series at community a few months back on mental health and I, you know, I, I taught on suicide and suicidal ideation. I, I could mm. not have anticipated how much feedback I would get. And not just from people that were like, oh, man, I'm so glad that you're talking about this because I'm sure that this will be meaningful for a lot of people. I mean, like first person accounts of like, this was me two years ago. Wow. This is me five years ago. Or even this is me 20 years ago. And every once in a while, I, st I still really struggle. But this church or that message or this text or this verse or the Holy Spirit or this friend or this community, like just over and over and over again. And, uh, and that was just from, well, at least for me personally, one sermon. Like it just felt like, hmm. oh, my gosh, all these people, some of whom, I mean, you know, prior to pandemic, I was like, man, I, I interacted with you every Sunday in the lobby, you know, for three seconds, 30 seconds, a couple of minutes. Some of them I knew better than that. It was just yeah, it was so overwhelming to me personally realize, gosh, in our just in our one church, there was this many people like legitimately struggling or had struggled with or knew somebody or knows somebody or, you know what I mean? Like it was just way more pervasive, I guess, than I realized that here was a story like this about, like you said, not like a superstar, but certainly somebody who, I mean, what little like six year old boy doesn't at some point in his life not want to be a a professional baseball player, you know, correct uh, to get there and be like, nah, this still, this didn't do it. This isn't, I'm still something's something's, you know, really in the way of my happiness or my joy or, or whatever it is. I just think, gosh, what a, what a reminder that those, those things don't ultimately bring the, the satisfaction and the wholeness that we, we often think they will, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He goes on, the article goes on to say something that you basically touched on there. Uh, that this is a burgeoning mental health crisis in this country, that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that 11 percent of Americans, American adults surveyed in June considered suicide, that suicidal ideation among 18 to 24 year olds was at 26 yeah. percent. He knows uh, talk about Drew Robinson. He knows this is difficult to talk about it. He knows it's even more difficult to suffer through. He knows because he lived it. And earlier in the article, uh, he went on to say uh, one of the reasons he believes he's here is to tell people it's OK not to be OK, that it's OK not to be OK. And so kind of with the time we have, you said you've preached on this and we're kind of blown away by the by the response. Uh, what about the person Ian, out there right now who's like, it's I don't feel OK to not be OK and who's having some of these thoughts kind of start with the it's OK to not be OK. And then if there are people really in the throes of it right now, what would you encourage them to do right now? How can they go get help? Yeah. I'm, I, first off, you know, please talk to somebody. And there's there's all sorts of hotlines and websites and the statistics are are overwhelming. A lot of the feedback that that we got back 
from people who were currently struggling was how freeing it was to know that they weren't the only one, you know, to know that like part of what makes yeah. suicidal ideation so insidious is, is it, it convinces you that uh, you're the only one who's ever felt this way or feeling this way. And Devona, the, the mental health professional that I actually interviewed for that Sunday, one of the things she kept reiterating was if somebody tells you that one of the best things to say first is, it's understandable that you'd feel this way. It's normal that, you know what I mean? Like mm. that's part of, that's another way of saying it's okay to not be okay. Like it seems to be this one thing that we often don't talk about in the church, unfortunately has often been way behind the curve on this one, which is why like for me, I want to always be iterating like depression is not a sin. Anxiety is not a sin. Mental illness is not a sin. Like we don't ever shame someone for like, getting medicine you if they have the flu or getting a cast if you break your bone and yet still yeah. unfortunately often in communities of faith mental health stuff is still stigmatized with the very least it's sort of like silenced it's sort of kept like out there somewhere and the other thing that i think is really important to remember is that like loving jesus doesn't always just magically make these things go away that we we need help and that's okay and that's not anti-christian and that's not anti-jesus to meet with the professional and to maybe meet with one for a long time and to get medication that can help perhaps fix an imbalance or something that's you know what i mean like that's kind of what i mean by when we say it's okay to not be okay like that's the beauty of the gospels that we are all coming with whatever brokenness we bring and just to remind people that that you matter you matter to god you matter to people that depression is a liar that Scripture is filled with stories of people who struggled profoundly, you know, like sometimes when you when you rifle through a sermon series or the songs that most churches sing, it would be a surprise to you that like, wow, I don't know, the Christian faith had space for struggle and sadness and depression and anxiety. You know what I mean, like it, it sometimes gets kind of glossed over. And I think just reminding people of those things and who they are in Christ and, and that God sees them and knows them even maybe even especially in the midst of their brokenness or whatever they're, they're carrying. That's, that's why I think it's, it, you can almost never reiterate it too many times. Like whatever you're bringing, bring it fully because Jesus sees it anyway. And there, I think there's a lot of freedom in that. Absolutely. That's a good word. I'd encourage people. This article is so well done and it's so long because it tells the story of Drew Robinson, who growing up in Las Vegas was even a, uh, a teammate of Chris Bryant from the Cubs. And uh, he says uh, at one point in the story about him, he says, uh, one thing I came to learn after all this is I'm not alone. And I think there are people out there who need to hear that, that you're not alone. And so I would encourage you to go read this story up at our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram uh, com at Common Good Talk about San Francisco outfielder Drew Robinson's. It says his remarkable second act. It's well worth your read. Well, coming up next, friend of the show, uh, Scott Sauls, uh, wrote a blog post entitled this, When a Father Wound Defines You. That's coming up next from Scott Sauls here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Hope that you are doing well. Well, Scott Sauls, who we affectionately call a friend of the show, he's been on the show a few times. But if you've listened to the show at all in the past two years, you know that uh, for as, as many times as he's been on, uh, exponentially more have we read his articles, read his blog posts, referenced his tweets, somebody that we both respect. And 
man, now that we all know you're moving to Nashville, uh, the Nashville area, it feels like everybody we talk about is from the Nashville area now. Uh, But that's where Scott Sauls is. He is a pastor uh, in Nashville, uh, down by where Ian will be will be moving here soon. Uh, But Ian, he wrote what I think is an important blog post that I would love for you to help us out with, have you read for us. It was uh, written at the end of January. He wrote, when a father wound defines you, this feels like it's going to be pretty deep and and pretty important. When a father wound defines you, why don't you let us know what Scott Sauls had to say here? I mean, is it safe to? Am I going to get emotional? It's the picture alone of this like stuffed teddy. It looks like it could be a lot. on On the concrete. I don't know that I'm in the right emotional state for this. All right, let me let me go for it anyway. <clears throat> Since I've said it before and I'll say it again, I am comforted deeply so by the fact that God put so many misfits and insecure people in the Bible and then accomplished beautiful things through their lives. The ancient Jewish patriarch Jacob is one of these people. Jacob was haunted by insecurity and self-doubt, which makes perfect sense. As the second-born son of Isaac from early childhood, Jacob lived with the pain of knowing that he was his father's second favorite son. Isaac loved his first son and Jacob's twin brother Esau the best. Years of doting on and favoring Esau, his macho hunter-gatherer son, uh, wounded Jacob, a mama's boy, in comparison to his brother very deeply. Another significant detail about Jacob's childhood is that his father named him Jacob, a name that in Hebrew means liar or some might say deceiver. Can you imagine growing up with a name like this? Every time someone says your name, it reminds you that ever since your birth, your father pronounced a curse over you instead of a blessing, and that from your earliest days, he has looked upon you with contempt instead of favor. Your own father has decided that as far as he was concerned, you are a nobody instead of a somebody. Jacob resorted to desperate measures in an attempt to reverse the negative verdict spoken over him by Isaac. When he and his brother Esau were adult men and Isaac had lost his eyesight and was dying, Jacob went into his father, posing as Esau, saying, Father, it's me, Esau. Give me my blessing. Then believing that the son of his scorn was instead son of his love. Isaac spoke the blessing unaware and under false pretense over Jacob instead of Esau. I once heard Tim Keller say that Jacob's deceit was the first recorded case of identity theft. But what was Jacob's motivation? Why under false pretense and knowing that it would not be long before both Isaac and Esau would find him out. Did Jacob deceive anyway? 10 out of 10 therapists would say that it was because Jacob, like every other child in the world, craved a paternal blessing. More than anything, he longed to hear words of affirmation spoken over him by his father. And if the blessing can only be gained under false pretenses, a child will resort to any measure to satisfy this primal craving. Simply put, Jacob wanted more than anything to hear from his father's lips. I see you. You matter. I love you. I like you. You matter to me. See, I knew this was going to get me choked up already. This is this is the... Cats in the cradle of the blogosphere, and there's no way I'm making it through the rest of this. Uh, what do you What do you think so far of, of what he's not only set up, but what he's sort of observed about that story? First of all, it's the cats in the cradle of the blogosphere is one of the greatest lines you've ever uttered. <laughs> oh wow, wow, thanks. Well, trying to trying to end the week strong. <laughs> that was fabulous. The cats in the cradle of the blogosphere. <laughs> Scott Sauls is such a fabulous writer, and I've never really considered Jacob and Esau in that way. It's always like, well, he mm. wants the blessing. He wants, but no, he. This idea of uh, just picture if it was a given that your dad preferred your brother to you, and it was just like, like this is like stated as fact in the story, and uh, that he had named you liar and deceiver, and that. 
that you are always kind of chasing. Yeah, man, this, I think Saul's is right that in the end he wanted to have what his brother had, not even just in the blessing, but in his father's love and approval. And then to move it to our side of things and just to go, this is what every kid wants. This is what every, not only kid, but every adult wants. Like to yeah. have that paternal blessing of, of your dad saying, I love you. I like you. I respect you. Uh, I'm, I'm for you. Uh, and Saul's goes on to talk about his own kids. Uh, he said, what is it in the heart of a child that makes her or him long to be watched and to be seen, even while doing something so mundane, something so un- unspectacular as reading a book to herself quietly? That's the story he just told. It's the same thing that resides in the heart of a grown up. In the heart of every adult and child resides the longing to be watched and then to be praised, to be known and then to be loved, to be seen and exposed and then to not be rejected. It's a longing to be approved and favored. It's a longing to be somebody in the eyes of a greater somebody. It's a longing to be secure. He goes on to say comedian Ellen DeGeneres talks about the fictitious, quote, approval patch that she wears under her sleeve every day. Uh, And he said, but for Ellen, Jacob and the rest of us, the craving never stops. We are made in the image of God. The purpose of whose existence is to be glorified and adored and given honor and praise. Why then would we ever think it odd to desire praise ourselves being made in his image? And this is just such a huge deal, man. It's this idea that we want uh, we want to be accepted and we want to be um, seen and affirmed, not just by our earthly dads or by other people in our lives, but by our heavenly father. Uh, this idea of the approval patch, it, it's uh, I read that and, and that idea I've talked to you before, how I feel like I'm a people pleaser. I think that's it. It's this idea of getting the approval of others, hearing others say good job. And, and I think we do that with our Heavenly Father as well. Well, and there's some layers to this because uh, I want to read this Groucho Marx illustration that he gives. And part of the reason I want to read it is because. My father loves Groucho Marx. So nice. there's some layers to that, right? We're talking about uh, approval of our father and whatnot. So let me share that, and then I'll share with you something I read this morning. He says, there's a Groucho Marx skit that I love because I relate to it so much. In the skit, Groucho is having a conversation with a friend in which he goes on and on and on and on and on about himself. In the course of going on and on about himself, he slips into a brief moment of self-awareness and apologizes to his friend for talking so much about himself. He politely says to his friend, well, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? (laughs) (laughs) So good. And so in my uh, in my devotions this morning, actually, I was I was reading from uh, Matthew and the guy that was offering kind of some observations in this devotional book that I'm reading. It's the uh, the moment where where God speaks to Jesus and says, this is my, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And what is Mm -hmm. so beautiful about that particular interaction is as far as we can tell, Jesus hasn't done any miracles yet. He's not preached any sermons yet. It's this, this moment of the father speaking approval and blessing over the son. And and the guy that wrote it challenged all of us to, you know, as we're reading like, Hey, just take a moment today and imagine God just speaking approval and affection and love and blessing over you well before you've done anything praiseworthy well before you've built your resume you know to where you think it needs to be well before you've accomplished any of those things god speaks favor and affection and approval over you and i think what a what a powerful image that he, you know he literally said what just imagine you're walking into the waters with jesus there 
and you experience that. And I think that is something, regardless if you're Enneagram or your Myers-Briggs or your StrengthsFinders, mm-hmm. I think that is something that we, we probably all need to hear, that God loves you, not some future version of you. That God's, yeah. God's affection for you is not based on your performance for him. And that's, I, that's really, really good news. And I think, yeah, regardless of where you're at in your, your life stage journey or whatever, that's, that's a good thing to grapple with. Your future neighbor here, Scott Sauls, he ends with the exact same verse you just did. You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased, Matthew 3, 17. And Saul says, approval patch no longer necessary. Ceaseless striving for approval no longer required. No more fear of mediocrity or of your longing or of your legacy being forgotten. Because now, Jacob, I'm giving you a new name. From now on, you'll be named Israel, which means he wrestles with God. And he goes on to talk about that wrestling. Uh, but I love that. he Saul's uses the same verse you just referenced there in Matthew 3. That's and wild. then just that line, approval patch, no longer necessary. So I, we were only able to scratch the surface of this. I would really encourage you to go read uh, from Scott Saul's here, When a Father Wound Defines You, because it's just a powerful word uh, there from Scott Saul's. Coming up next, we're going to be joined for two segments by Tara Beth Leach, pastor, speaker, and author of the book Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. Tara Beth Leach is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. And uh, we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by pastor, speaker, and author of the book Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. Uh, That is Tara Beth Leach. Tara Beth, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's, It's fun to be here. I'm glad. Oh, we're, we're appreciative. It's absolutely our pleasure. Before we jump into talking about the book and other things, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, however you'd like? Yeah. So my name is Tara Beth, as, as we've already established that, <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Uh, I live in Downers Grove, Illinois. I uh, just came from Pasadena. I was a senior pastor out there at a church called First Church of the Nazarene, or affectionately known as Paznaz. I was there for um, under five years hmm. and came back to Chicagoland to care for my folks. My dad is fighting cancer and oh. we've got hmm. some other family things going on. And so now, I'm on staff at Christ Church in Oak Brook. Mm-hmm. Been married to the love of my life, Jeff, for 15 years. He is a true rocket scientist. When we were in California, he worked for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and now he does other cool aerospace stuff out here. And we have two boys, Caleb and Noah. Wow. Nine right, so and ten years old. That's incredible. Now, you have a new book coming out called Radiant Church, and I, I'm trying to think of a subtitle more timely than this, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. I, I don't know if you could have known how timely this book would be given the last year that we've had, but I'd love, I'd love for you to kind of start us off with a 30,000-foot perspective. Why, why did you write this book, and what's sort of your hope for this book? Yeah, so this book began with an overwhelming burden, a heavy burden for the church in North America. So I, you know, for me, first and foremost, I'm a pastor um, who happens to write. Mm. And so, you know, I'm a pastor. I I love the church. I care about the church. Um, You know, I want to give my life to this work uh, because I believe in it. And so I was pastoring out on the West Coast in Pasadena 
And I got there before the 2016 election. And, you know, that fall, I did a preaching series called The Politics of Jesus, um, where I wanted to paint a very pastoral kingdom vision of what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God in this mm-hmm. this this political world and this political environment that we we're living in. And uh, it was a topic to me that should not be controversial as Christians. Um, and it was. And then navigating the 2016 election as a pastor and any pastor who's listening right now can attest it's hard. It was hard. Um, mm-hmm. It was hard work. It was painful. It was painful pastoring people um, through this on both sides um, for different reasons. And um, and at the same time, you know, I, I'm originally from Chicagoland. So at the same time, while I'm in California, I'm watching Chicago churches just um, – blow up over the Willow Creek stuff and then the mm-hmm. Harvest Bible Chapel stuff. Right. Um, and it just was one moral failure after the next. And it just, I felt like I was standing there in this rubble of um, what was happening in evangelicalism. I'm just saying, what is happening? What is going on? Something's not right. Like this doesn't just happen over. Yeah night. And so in uh, 2018, I sat down and um, didn't intend to write a book. I sat in a coffee shop um, in Mammoth, California, uh, and just started to write. And I actually ended up sitting in that coffee shop for eight hours and wrote Mm, 8,000 words in a day. Wow! And it was a, it was words of lament. Um, Mm. I wept while I wrote. Um, it was words of hope and prayer and longing, almost kind of starting out like a manifesto of just like, we can do better. We, right. we can do better than this. We, but we have to do some really hard stuff first. We've, we've got to mm. lament. We have to repent. We have to confess. And so, um, so I kept writing and eventually, you know, reached out to some editors. They said, okay, is this, is this anything? Um, and so that's how it came about. It's, it is a book of lament. It's a book of longing. Um, it's a book of longing to see the bride of Christ free herself. And in particular, when I say the bride of Christ, this book is written within the context of, of what I was born into, and that is white evangelicalism. And so that is who I'm speaking to. Hmm. Um, and so um, it's it's a love letter. It's a letter of lament and hope. Well, that's great. Tara Beth, I wonder, uh, as we speak about kind of painting a picture of restoring the credibility of our witness, what do you think? Uh, uh, what do you think our witness is right now? What do you think our reputation as the church is right now to the rest of our culture, to nonbelievers, to people as they look upon the church? Yeah. So any of us who has friends or families, uh, members that are non-Christian, um, may be able to relate to the reality that there is an animosity. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've observed of what the church has done about this animosity is we have fantasized about this idea of persecution um, and this animosity that we see, we're twisting it and we're calling it persecution instead of pointing the finger back at ourselves and saying, mm-hmm. you know what? Maybe this animosity that we're experience isn't experiencing isn't persecution, and maybe maybe you know culture wars isn't the right approach. But instead, what if we point the finger back at ourselves and say maybe it has to do with the credibility of our witness? Yeah, maybe it's what those in the world are seeing, and they're looking in and they're saying, "My goodness, 
Is that what your God is like? Is that what your Jesus is like? Because if so, I'm not interested because when they look in, when they peer into this this gathered people, the bride of Christ, and I'm not talking, when I say look, and I'm not talking about Sunday mornings, mm-hmm. I'm just talking about looking within the culture. Um, they see a lot of vitriol. They see, um, they see a lot of selling out. Hmm. Um, they see a lot of, it's, it's confusing. Um, I think for a lot of, of those who aren't professing Christians, because I don't think they're seeing a lot of love. Um, and, and that's not just something I suspect. I, I have a lot of non-Christian friends. Um, right. and their animosity is because they've either, either been hurt or betrayed or they've seen things that just feel so hypocritical and so far from who they want or who they believe Jesus is. Hmm. I think one of the things that I, I probably caught the most heat for is I said something like, I think we need to discern the difference between persecution and consequences. Like there tends to be this like this tendency to point out there and it's the culture and they're the, you know, that's, that's where the problem is. And your, your book seems to do lovingly, Kind of the opposite. What, what's maybe just one or two things that you would challenge someone listening right now who's maybe more inclined to point a finger like out there, there's the problem to, to take a look inward? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, I mean, it's it's easy to point the finger outward, um, yeah. but we cannot place the same sort of uh, judgment on the world. Um, I think ultimately it comes down to um, looking inward at ourselves. You know, there's so many different false narratives and false storylines that we, the church, have rooted ourselves in. Um, and, and I talk about a number of these in the book. I mean, some of them are the ways that the church in North America, um, and again, white, white evangelicalism, and the ways that we have bowed down to the altar of success. Um, we have chosen success over faithfulness. Um, We've chosen uh, rubbing shoulders with power over truth um, and faithfulness. Um, Another another thing that is profoundly concerning to me as a pastor, and I think this is where just a lot of this vitriol is coming, is um, this belief that I'm observing that um, even if they won't, if they even if they don't say it like this, um, they are living as though they believe this to be true, and that is a belief that the kingdom of God is going to be enacted through partisan politics. Mm. Or that the kingdom of God is is going to be legislated, or the kingdom of God is going to be enacted through a particular president, um, mm. and we've we have a confused kingdom theology and how the kingdom of God is enacted, mm. and as a result, um, the I see so many Christians um, choosing and selling out. Um, it, so it's it's either they're selling out intentionally. Or they just really believe that the kingdom of God is going to be enacted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, which is it? Um, and, and that's what is so con- concerning to me. And also, I mean, there's so many things, you know, we could talk about individualism. We could talk about our false images of God. But there's right. just a lot that we've got to deal with, with it within our own, our own house. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. What a timely book, Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. That author is Tara Beth Leach. And Tara Beth uh, I want to just ask you about the title because obviously words are chosen very much on purpose. So what talk to us about the word radiant. Why did you choose the word radiant? What are you what are you trying to convey with that word? 
Yeah. So first of all, um, Jesus is the radiant one. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is in the radiant of God's glory. And we are the radiant um, one's bride. We, Jesus calls us the light of the world. And from the very beginning of the story of God, when God begins to make a covenant with the people, we see this call for these people to be a peculiar people, to be a living alternative, to be a holy people, a holy nation, uh, to be a light to the nations, that the people of God would live in such a way uh, that the world would actually take notice at the radiance and the beauty. And this call now is the people of God in Christ, where these floodgates have been open. And now at this gathered table, what that is called the people of God is Jew, Greek, Gentile, male, female, and on. We are gathered and we have this, again, this unique call to stand out in such a way that we reflect the radiance of God, that mm-hmm. the world would, would take notice and be able to see the bride and say, whoa. Is that what your God is like? Because if so, then I want to get to know God. I want to get to know Jesus because it is radiant and beautiful that we would literally be living in such a way that the world would see the radiance of God. Wow. I love that. It's it's pretty obvious when you go through some of the reviews of your book. One, that people deeply love you. Like There's, there's numerous references to you yourself just being a radiant person. And the other thing that I, I really see over and over again is how much you love the church. And, you know, Brian and I have done a number of articles where there, there still seems to be a very common trend where they're like, Hey, I'm into Jesus. I just hate the church. And, you know, that's a pretty loaded statement, but it's also something that, you know, as Brian and I as pastors, and I'm sure as a pastor yourself, you've experienced this. How do you help shepherd someone who legitimately feels that way? They're like, I think I'm, I'm into Jesus and the Trinity and the resurrection. I just really can't stand the church and I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, that is one of the big reasons I wrote this book. So I wrote this book for two audiences. Um, I wrote it for number one, those of us who are participants in the systems in this world um, that have caused a lot of harm. Um, you know, systems of racism and sexism and all the isms, you know, we can think of. Um, but then I also wrote it for those that are saying exactly that. I, I'm interested in Jesus. I just can't do the church. And I want to say, you have good reason to say that. You're not wrong. What you've seen is painful, and I don't want to minimize that. And then I also want to say, okay, so let's look to Jesus. And yes, like I love Jesus, and I've wanted to walk away, but I also believe Jesus, Mm. meaning I Mm. believe the words of Jesus. And guess what? When I read the words of Jesus, Jesus talks about us a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Jesus laid down his life with this vision of what? The church Uh, Jesus um, prayed for us in the garden, um, not so that we would walk away and give up, but so that we would press into this harder, um, that we would be peacemakers. Uh, Jesus, I believe Jesus, when he cast this vision in the Sermon on the Mount, of this Sermon on the Mount community that is to be in stark contrast and living alternative, I don't think Jesus cast that vision and said, oh, by the way, um, when we when we reach the year, you know, 2018, 2019, 2016, um, it's just going to all come apart. And so, like, let's just do away with this idea because it's, it's not going to work. I, Jesus, Jesus believed in it and still believes mm-hmm. in it and still calls us to lean into that. Mm-hmm. And so we as a church have this incredible call to partner with this work that that Jesus talked about. Um, and, and to partner with Jesus in the work, in this work that, that Jesus, um, just through the, the gift of the Trinity is doing in this world now. 
Hmm. And so we can, we can give up, we can walk away. But for me, it's pretty hard to reconcile. Okay. If I love Jesus, then my call is also to love the church and to lean into this vision. And Tara Beth, uh, wondering what is it, what would it look like for you to go, you know what, uh, it's a decade from now, a year from now, whatever. Uh, these are the markers that restoration of cre- credibility is occurring. What, what? So we've turned the corner. What are some markers that you think that would go? Yeah, we're getting this. The church's credibility is is on the rise right now. Yeah. So I think that there's going to have to be a lot of dismantling that needs to be done. Um, and so, and, and this is again, this is that that first group that I talked about of those of us who are participating in in systems that are harmful in this world. And so, we've got to dismantle and deconstruct things, mm-hmm. um, and not end there. Again, this is this for me. It's not about deconstruct, dismantling, deconstruct, dismantling, but it's also rebuilding, um, leaning into something new, and reconstructing. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, the things that we want to see dismantled are um, toxic patriarchy and, and sexism. We want to see dismantled, um, you know, uh, Christian nationalism. Uh, we want to see dismantled um, um, racism, and, and not just that I'm a racist, um, but that meaning like the systemic racism that exists in this world. Um, and so, I believe that some of the markers of that happening is is Christians and churches no longer turning a blind eye to it, but Hmm. instead saying, yeah, you know what? We need to talk about this. Like, yes, this has been uncomfortable, um, but we can't remain in hiding anymore. Uh, And so we want to lean in. We want to listen. We want to listen to how we've harmed others. Um, And we want to um, not just dismantle for dismantle's sake, which is one of the concerns I have as a pastor, that there's just so much dismantling and deconstructing. But then let's press into the words of Jesus and let's see something fresh and new and exhilarated and wonderful and beautiful. I love that. I, I was just, as you were answering that question, I had this thought that there's a difference between deconstruction and demolition, right? And your hope isn't to demolish, just to level. It's like, no, no, let's unpack the parts that are, are toxic, maybe the parts that we've not been aware of. And what would you say to the person maybe who they're listening to what you're saying? They're thinking, I don't, I don't think any of that is a problem. I don't see any, I don't see any of those issues in the church and therefore we seem to be going on the right trajectory to the, to the person that feels like, nope, the, the church seems like it's in pretty good shape right now. And we're looking like Jesus and we're heading the direction that we're supposed to. Uh, what, yeah. What, what hope or challenge maybe would you, would you offer to that person? Yeah. Well, hopefully they're still listening because hmm. you might have a few viewers that have already turned the radio off and are angry. <laughs> right now. Um, and, and that's okay. Like I can handle yeah. that. I'm a pastor. Like I'm here for it to walk with people through some of this really hard stuff. Hmm. Um, so those who've hung on and are, are not mad at me yet um, and are still questioning, um, I would say, let's do some deep listening. Um, and, and what I mean is, is, you know, I, I have a lot of friends, for example, that say, well, I, I listen to this person of color. Um, I want to say, like, let's listen to a variety of people's experiences um, across the political spectrum and not even just like people who are so so so-called experts. But can we can we practice listening Um, in chapter eight of this book? I talk about practices that will get us through turbulent times, Um, listening and eating together and the practice of examination. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to honestly come before God without these just preconceived um, ideas of where we think we are and say, "Okay, God, where am I really? And go through this process of examination. And we do. I mean, this is hard work. Um, I think it's it's taking a posture of humility and saying, you know, I might have some more to learn. Um, I want to listen. I want to ask questions. Hmm. 
instead of being the one that's, you know, knows all things. I want to listen. I want to ask questions. Um, I want to break bread with others. I want to get to know people in other neighborhoods and I want to hear their stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tara Beth, we're so grateful for your book and the time you've spent with us. Before we let you go, I do know that there's a special event for your book launch coming up on February 16th. Could you tell our listeners about that special event? Yeah, I'm so excited. And Tuesday, February 16th at 7 p.m., we're having an hour and a half event uh, where we are bringing in a number of just wonderful speakers um, and theologians and pastors. And we're going to together talk about the credibility of our witness. So we're going to have Ashley Island. She's over at Mars Hill. We're going to have Greg Boyd, Tiffany Blum, Mike Frost, Cheryl Bridges, John, um, Helen Lee, Sharon Hottie Miller, Glenn Packiam, Sean Palmer and wow. Christine Kane. Um, we have tons of good, we're giving away like 30 books. Northern Seminary is giving away a class. Wow. They're giving away a subscription to a seminary now. Um, and then we also have a worship leader wrote a song to go with the book called Radiant, and it's going to be debuted that night. And if you registered to the event, you'll get a free download of the song at the end of the night. So wow. it is going to be a blast. I'm so excited. So that's February 16th, 7 to 8.30. And if they want to learn more, they can find me on social media or um, at my website, tarabethleach.com. That's right. You can go to TaraBethLeach.com. We'll also put that up at our Facebook page, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, that sounds like a fabulous event. So we hope that goes well for you on February 16th. Uh, again, Tara Beth Leach, author of the new book, Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. Tara Beth, thank you so much. This was great. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, thanks for friend. having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, here's how we're going to end today with this article uh, from, uh, from TED.com. Why your brain loves it when you exercise, plus three easy ways to work out at home. So a lot of us uh, go, and yeah, I know it's good to work out, but this is going to help us understand why. Uh, but then also going, hey, I'm locked in my house because it's freezing outside and and I'm not really comfortable going back to the gym or whatever else. Uh, and it says, here's some easy ways to work out at home. So uh, in our brain science guy, that's you, uh, when it says, why don't you get us into it, especially as it talks to us as to why our brain loves it when we exercise. Yeah, you can tell this is potentially written from some perspective, not in the Midwest, because the recommendations are like, hey, just a walk around the block or a 10 minute online workout. <laughs> like I would yes. really emphasize the 10 minute online workout over the walk around the block right now. But then again, <laughs> some of my my more committed running friends were posting photos just this morning. And I thought, man, no, you are way more committed to this than than I am. Uh, there's a couple of things going on here. Exercising to increase your fitness literally builds brand new brain cells. It changes your brain's anatomy, physiology, and function. This particular scientist explains every time you work out, you're giving your brain a neurochemical bubble bath. And these regular bubble baths can also help protect your brain in the long term from conditions like Alzheimer's and dementia. This sounds mm-hmm. great, but it's hard to turn those long term benefits into motivation to get up and do something every day. This type of article will inspire some people. And for a whole lot more, it'll say it'll it'll make someone nod their head in agreement and then change nothing. And I think part of what's so, so convicting for me, especially given the year that we've had, where I think uh, people are probably much more attuned to their own anxiety Mm -hmm. and stress and maybe even depression that 
they're they're maybe more open to a 10 minute workout than they ever have been. They may be more open to things like silence and breathing and meditation and Lectio Divina. And those, I think people are potentially more receptive now to some of those things than ever before, because they're like all the lights on their dashboard are going off. Like we're not doing great right now. We, we need to find something other, something different to do other than what we're we're currently doing. I think that, you know, I hope, hope people, I hope people lean into that a little bit. Yeah. And the age old question here, they try to answer, how much do you need to exercise in order to feel those benefits? Like, do I need to put in a two hour workout or is 10 jumping jacks going to do it? And it says, Dr. Suzuki says that's the billion dollar question. Unfortunately, there's no simple answer. Five push ups or 10 burpees don't automatically release a set amount of dopamine. In her 2017 TED Talk, she recommended trying to fit in a 30 minute uh, workout session of exercise three to four times a week. But the real answer, especially now, is to exercise for as long as you can, ideally doing it a little bit every day. Even a walk, as you said, can start to give you those neurotransmitter and mood benefits. Uh, Many of the positive effects she mentions come from doing cardiovascular exercise. That is any workout that gets your heart rate up. But even this can be more accessible than it feels, a vigorous session of power vacuuming. Let's just think about that one for a second. A vigorous session of power vacuuming will get your heart pumping, even if you can't go for a run. If you're building a stairs, take them instead of the elevator. And so the point is, just start doing something uh, and and just start moving and going. And it uh, goes on to say that it, there's no best time to do it. Uh, and, uh, and, and now there's this whole kind of cottage industry of online fitness things and apps you can be doing. Ian, I'd say the point is, and and I've joked on this show about like how I will kind of find excuses not to work out. Like, oh, I don't know. It's cold outside or I can't afford a gym membership or, you know, whatever else it might be. Uh, But this article's point is, listen, even when you're vacuuming, you can do it in such a way that gives you a workout. Uh, It's just kind of about having this mindset that exercise is not just good for me physically, but it's also good for me mentally and it's good for my long term health down the road. Yeah, I think the one thing that baffles me is who's vacuuming without power? Like, how do you (laughs) power vacuuming? I was like, is that a a, like a manual lawnmower? They have just a like a like a rotating (laughs) cylinder attached to a broomstick handle. No, I, I think. I think my my brother, who is a, uh, a he's a brilliant chiropractor in Michigan, Foundation Chiropractic, by the way, if you're uh, in southeastern Michigan, highly recommend him. Same as Zach Simpkins, Doctor Zachary Simpkins. But I, I'm really really grateful to have a brother who is mindful of those things and deeply educated in those things, and has the courage to tell you, like, hey man, I've been noticing your posture lately, or you know that kind of stuff. To have someone who's sort of in your ear a little bit, like, hey, this is these shifts are in the wrong direction and they're so incremental that you probably aren't noticing them. But, but I do as someone who has, has specialized in this, I remember him sending me a video years ago and the whole kind of premise of the video was, um, could you find it in your day to only sit or lay down 23 and a half hours a day? <laughs> the whole, the whole kind of premise was just move for a half hour a day. That's all you have to. And it was sort of a snarky way to end it. Like we spend our entire day sitting in a chair, Sitting in a car, laying in our bed, just completely right, Dasa, just <laughs> motion, yes, motionless. Yes. He's like, is, would you be willing to only do that twenty three and a half hours a day, <laughs> and just commit thirty <laughs> minutes to some kind of 
vigorous movement of any kind. Walk up and down the stairs a couple of times and like carry, you know, jugs of milk. Like there's just so many, most of us are, are so trapped by the, well, I'll never be a bodybuilder or I'm never going to be shredded like this or, you know, and that's, I think that reveals a whole other issue in our, in our culture. Like, well, if I'm not going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, then why even bother? You're like, well, cause it's good for right. your brain and your heart and your muscles and your joints and your skin and your, mental health and you'll live longer. I mean, all of these things like, well, but I'm not, if I'm not gonna be a runway model, why even try? Okay. So yeah, hopefully, yeah. hopefully somebody finds some motivation in this article. And I think, I think it makes some really compelling cases. And so if you're out there, that's kind of what we want to leave you with today. Understand the benefits of movement of exercise and get creative with it. Get online and find an online community that can help. Or like they said, I love that phrase, power vacuuming. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to think about that one. But all that to say, there are things that you can be doing, even in the dead of a Chicago winter, when we all just feel cooped up and, uh, and kind of, like you said, kind of uh, stationary. And so wanted to leave you with that. Uh, it helps your brain. Uh, it helps your, your psychology and it helps your body as we exercise and would love for you uh, to read that article. You can do it at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show, or at Common Good Talk. Uh, and with that, we are done. And so we hope you will join us tomorrow from four until six. Have a great night for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.